What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by my man, Jordan Lips. Jordan, your hair looks great today, dude. Thanks, dude. This is left, just like leftover chunks of hair gel still in here, so I appreciate it. <laughs> Honestly, I haven't had you on the podcast yet because I hate to have people on that better hair than me. No, but not a chance. <laughs> you might man. have me be there. No, uh, this thing, I don't know, man. This thing flows. <laughs> Anyways, dude, for the listeners who might not know, can you give us just a quick background on who you are and what you're up to? Yeah, I'm a started off as a personal trainer. I moved into the online space maybe a couple of years ago. I'm an MNU certified nutritionist and N1 uh, N1 certified online coach. Um, and you know, online coach seems to be a dime a dozen these days. But like you, I help people who want to get jacked sustainably, but also want to be healthy. Work on relationship with food, maybe clinical issues as well, and so kind of the whole gamut there. But um, you know, uh, the whole spectrum, so to speak. Maybe basically everybody who's not a competitor. Cool. I love it, man. How long have you been coaching for? Oof. I've been personal training for like maybe a decade at this point, but online coaching sort of went into, I went into like a hybrid mode, maybe like five years in. And I started seeking, I started seeking people who like the more knowledge I started to kind of gain and learn and go to more seminars and get more certifications. I really wanted to use that knowledge. And I was finding that in my personal training, I was serving a purpose for the people that I was seeing, but I wasn't really impacting them in the other 23 and a half hours or 23 hours of the day that I wasn't seeing them. And I wasn't utilizing a lot of this information that I was accruing, you know, week after week, seminar, year after year. And I really wanted to go out and find people that wanted to use me for that knowledge. And so I figured online is the place where you can find anybody basically. And so I've been online coaching for like maybe four years total, but exclusively online, basically pre pandemic. Uh, I went fully online. Okay. Okay. I love it. I couldn't agree more, man. I think that I know in a very similar, I was in a very similar place when I was coaching people in person. It was very much like, Hey, I want to have, and maybe this was my mindset around it, but I feel like there were so many other things like, okay, I want to like introduce accountability trackers. I want to get more in depth with your nutrition. I want to do all these things. And it almost seemed like I struggled to get my clients in person to be receptive to taking all that on. But that was so frustrating for me because it was like, well, I'm not really helping you that much, right? Like we're leaving so much on the table because we don't have all these other pieces like your nutrition in place. I, that's, that's interesting to hear because I know that was for me as well. One of the biggest reasons I wanted to transition online is it's interesting how that works too. It's it's, and I have a theory, I suppose, not that we need a tangent on that, but I feel like they're just different things. Being a personal trainer and, and hiring a personal trainer has a different goal than hiring an online coach. I think the kind of person who's in the kind of place who hires an online coach might be or uh, a personal trainer in person might be the kind of person who more highly values you being present with them uh, throughout that process. And, and instead of like the kind of person who might be at a, a, a state of readiness to change where they just need the tools and they're ready to go versus a person who's like, right. I really need you to be there to push me 24 seven and be there like tangibly in person. And so, uh, you know, nothing against either thing. I think they both serve a really great purpose. Uh, loved personal training for sure, but just kind of an evolution, maybe not upward, but laterally just trying to help different people in different ways. Which do you think is more valuable in person coaching or online coaching? Um, it depends because I think that there's absolutely a group of people who, if not for their personal trainer in person, would not exercise. And so I think for that person sure. that it's going to be the difference for between no exercise and exercise. And that is obviously a monumental difference. Right. I definitely think I, you know, if we negate that one circumstance, I think I have far greater impact online with my clients. We just, I don't know, can it, the irony is that you're like, I try and explain this to my parents sometimes. I'm like, I have a way, way, not deeper connection, so to speak, but we work on way deeper things, relationship with food. It's a way more like longitudinal process where we're like working on things over time that go beyond just like coming in, getting hard workout and leaving. And so the irony is it feels like people are like, oh, it's online. So it must be, you know, less personal. It turns out to like right. be less bullshit about, you know, your day-to-day -day kids and your errands that you have to run after this and more deeply about kind of like relationship with food and body image stuff and obviously nuts and bolts of hypertrophy training and all that stuff too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's always, that's always an interesting conversation, like with the online versus in person. But I agree, man. Like I know there's some people that'll hop on like our initial call and it's like, Hey, really? Like 
you're best fit to just go work with someone in person like let's master like these basics of technique like you mentioned you really like need that appointment like okay i can't best serve you in that regard um but it is an interesting conversation from like the value perspective as well but we don't necessarily have to get into that piece of it but anyways man a big piece i wanted to have you on i feel like you and i are very much on the same way same wavelength with a lot of things and i kind of just wanted this to be a conversation around coaching your approaches and kind of just bounce some things back and forth so i honestly just have a random assortment of questions here for you that i think will be very applicable to the listeners so i should say i think most of i know most of my listeners i'm not sure where the listeners for your show are at probably in a relatively similar place but hey maybe i have 15 to 20 pounds of body fat that i want to lose and i want to build muscle so let's take most things from that frame um First question I have for you. So we have like all these stats thrown around around how many diets fail. Now I know there's like the 95% number which I don't think is actually technically true. I've seen that pretty hotly debated. Um, But anyways, we know that a lot of people lose weight successfully and then they regain it. So from your perspective, why, why do you think we have this pervasive problem where so many people are losing weight but then they're regaining it afterwards? You, you would agree that I mean, any question we're going to talk about is going to have some, 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 some sort of a multifactorial answer. And so a couple of things jump to mind. I think initially the people trying to do this on their own is a big issue. If you take a percentage of the people that pursue weight loss, uh, I know you and I are coaches and we might live in this echo chamber of everyone has coaches and coaching is normal and people get coaches right. and it's very normalized in our circle. But I'd say a if you were to somehow get the statistic that there'd probably be a very, very low percentage of people who pursue weight loss actually with the guidance of a qualified professional. And so I think that that's a big one. It's think if, if we're like, you know, the 95% thing is obviously a stupid, like terrible, terrible, terrible statistic. But let's, you know, let's assume that maybe that same 95% are people who are not working with coaches. And I'm not saying every person right. who works with a coach is going to have success. I am saying that this is like, you know, it's like trying to, you know, if you wanted to be a race car driver, you'd get a coach to teach you how to, this is something that is not, uh, I know intuitive eating is some, a bit of a misnomer to some degree, but it's not intuitive in our, in our, you know, uh, eating food environment right now for this to be something that you can just magically do on your own. We're not taught nutrition extensively. We're not taught the importance of like, honestly, we take health class, but it's a joke. Like there's nobody who like just randomly average person ends up with all the knowledge they need to kind of go through this on their own. So I think the right. a big one, there's several other ones I think are actually really important when it comes down to like the actual process. But the first step is like most people are doing this on their own and they are not an expert and there's no, no shame in not being an expert, by the way. I'm a firm believer in you can only be good at like one thing in your life. And if this is not your profession, then there's no shame in you not being like a whiz at it. And so I think a lot of people out there, it's like, stop trying to go at this by yourself. Like there's so many good avenues out there. And and while it might seem like a, you know, I get people who are like, oh, I'm sorry, your coaching is too expensive. I'm like, that's okay. Like, like, uh, I understand that, but you should also understand like this is an investment that's worth right. Maybe not me, maybe it's somebody else, but this is worth it to you or I mean, obviously, or it's not. I couldn't agree more, man. Um, I always like within like the initial conversation with a new client, I always use the example of, hey, okay, what's your occupation? All right. So imagine I was trying to, let's say you're like a, you're a midwife. I don't know why that's what comes to mind, but imagine I'm just here like, which that's a terrifying thought actually. Imagine I'm just like Googling how to be a great midwife, which I don't, I don't know why like this would possibly come up but again like i'm just googling like hey how do i be the best midwife possible i'm gonna try to figure that out like i could so much better and honestly in this case like much more safely just like okay i'm gonna intern under a midwife for like let's say three months i'm gonna learn so much from her then i'm gonna take that and i'm gonna be the best damn midwife on my own but like it is very interesting how i think that how you framed it it is very important to look at it as like an investment and straight up to like with coaching some people just won't be able to afford it and that's okay as well but i think the most important thing is to not like if you are in this this whatever percentage it is of people who have lost weight and you continue to regain it or you're struggling to lose in the first place like so many people fall in the cycle of like i've more or less been doing the same thing over for the last five to ten years and it's still not working it's like even like if you reach out to someone who you know knows more and even if you can't like avoid coaching that's okay but like at least let them point you in the right direction, I would say. Yeah, 
Agreed. That, that that's that's well said. And honestly, if you're the kind of person who's done this several times, like that's an expression that this is important to you, and it might you might just need to, uh, to take a step back and be like, well, I've tried this a whole bunch of times on my own. And how many more times am I going to try this on my own? Um, and I think we could pivot and talk about just the process in general. I think a couple big issues are just the, the lack of recognition of how important, how important maintenance is in terms of this process. I think the viewing of weight loss is myopic and misses the big picture of weight loss and weight maintenance. And, and that like, you know, we could talk specifically about like the maintenance phase after their diet is part of your deficit like it's part of this whole process this isn't this is a package deal this is not like weight loss and then return back to exactly doing what you were doing that got you where you were in the first place so i think this like when we talk about weight loss we have to talk about we have to have this like almost this like extension of the deficit is this period where we transition you back to the life that you'll be able to really sustain long term and i think we really need to just normalize those two things being a package deal it's like i don't take on a client for less than six months because even if you want to do a deficit let's say you want to do a deficit of eight to 12 weeks, like we are going to work together for at least three, three months after that to get you to a place where you feel confident that you could sustain it without me. I love that, man. That's such a good way to frame that. Like the maintenance after the diet is almost part of the diet. And that's the direction I was hoping you were going to take this when I asked this initial question is like the missing piece for it to be sustainable. Cause I think so many people, I know I've worked with so many people that are like, Hey, I'm so good at, if I want to commit to just starving myself and being super hungry for 12 weeks oh i will crush that shit but then it's after that it's like okay so now what okay i guess i'm just gonna go back to do what i was doing before and that's how we regain weight so talk us through a little bit man if you don't mind like what does this period post diet and again like as you said before it's gonna depend but generally like what is this period post diet like what are you focusing on with clients what does it typically look like I think it, it takes. I think it, you probably take a step back, and it probably starts with a pre-diet phase potentially, um, where you might have a client do some. Like if, if I'm not impressed, like you said, I'm not like. And personal, it's not about me being impressed. It's the way I phrase it. Of like somebody who can starve themselves for 12 weeks, like that doesn't to me necessarily like. Be, it's not a really large predictor to me of your long-term success if you can you know punish yourself for eight to 12 weeks. This not doesn't strike me as like a large predictor of success. And so if you can't you know, let's, let's use tracking calories, whatever method that you think you'll use long-term at maintenance. If you can't do that first at maintenance for a bit and kind of steady the ship, because I think a lot of people come to us at a state of chaos, a state of like feeling at there at the bottom of the barrel. And so some, sometimes what I find to be the most useful from, from my end as a coach is just getting people to steady the ship first. And it's like, Hey, you can't track at maintenance or whatever meal composition template or combination of non-tracking strategies we're using. If we can't do that at maintenance for four weeks, you know, and, and just steady the ship and build some good habits beforehand, then it's very unlikely that even if you are able to sustain those like eight, 12 weeks of, of starvation slash punishment slash deficit uncomfortableness, um, that long-term we're really going to be able to keep this off. And so I think that that's a, again, it comes back to that being an underrated skill. And so I think that practicing maintenance beforehand and then also practicing it during in the form of potential diet breaks or maintenance phases, I think intermittently practicing getting a more exposure to what your life is going to be like long term is really important. And then there's a discussion of like how you go about dieting in the first place. Like how far are you deviating from what your life will look like at maintenance in an attempted deficit? And I think there can be some controversial opinions here, but like I actually think that I'd be of the opinion that like I don't have anything wrong with I don't see anything wrong with aggressive dieting as an inherent strategy, let's say, but the further you deviate from what your normal life will look like, the more important it is to have established what that maintenance looks like before and practice it during. And, you know, it's like, it's like the race car drive. It's like the fast driving example. And I'm sure we'll talk about some calorie stuff in in the future. It's like the faster you drive, the more experience you're going to need, the more likelihood of crashing, the more danger. There's nothing inherently wrong with driving fast, but the more practice you'll need, you know, and the more skill you'll have to have and maybe the more guidance you'll have to have. And so um, I definitely think that that plays a huge part in terms of like how far have I deviated from my normal day to day in the pursuit of of lowering my calories? If it looks similar to what your life looks at maintenance, then it will be an easier transition to maintenance. That isn't always a great thing. Sometimes actually changing a lot of stuff helps people adhere to a deficit, changing their feeding window, you know, maybe going lower carb or maybe like whatever it is that they end up doing. Sometimes a big deviation can help people. Big changes we see in the research. Sometimes little changes help people. Some people do better with big changes. But I will say the more you deviate from whatever your day looks like at maintenance, the more important it is to practice before and during and to have a discussion with your coach about what that looks like after. 
Man, there's so much I want to talk about there. Uh, let's start with like the aggressive versus less ag- aggressive dieting side of things first. I really like that analogy of, okay, the faster we go, the more likely you are to crash, right? So, and I know even for me, like when I first got into like tracking my food and nutrition as a whole, it was much harder for me to like try to diet aggressively and do so successfully than it is now. I, for a long time, and I still kind of think you hear quite a bit in the industry. And honestly, it's probably just like the circle I'm in. I don't know if the listeners necessarily hear this, but there's a lot of people that very much push back against aggressive dieting, right? Where I think it's such a great point you made where it kind of depends on where the person is coming from. And like, as you said, hey, maybe a big lifestyle change is the best thing we can do, right? Like when everything feels way different, for some people that is like a very motivating and exciting, okay, I'm bought in. Okay, I'm gonna crush this, like, let's go. But I think it is so important to, again, consider where you're at. And also that's like the more, if it's like, hey, a lifestyle diet, I'm losing like maybe a half pound per week, but this isn't that much different than where I was pre-diet. Okay, it'll be pretty easy to transition away. But again, like if you're in a, if you're losing three pounds a week, which is very, very aggressive for most people, um, as you said, like that's going to be hard. That's going to be a big transition back to like, oh shit, I have like another 1500 calories per day to work with on average. That's such a drastic change. I'm more or less just reiterating what you said, but I, I really love where you're at there. So past that, as far as why people regain the weight or what else we need to do differently, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? Anything else that comes to mind there? Um, yeah, I, I think I think the the big ones that jump out to me are practicing maintenance either before, during, and a discussion of the importance after, establishing that as like a necessary addition to the diet as those two being a package deal, and then getting on board with a professional that you feel is understanding of the, of the goals that you have. Um, and beyond that, we could, we could dive into like environment optimization and just like thing, like little tips and tricks that make things more sustainable. But I think, I think that you get a lot of that from taking a step back and be like, okay, I need to work together with a coach and I need to make sure that I can first establish some of these good habits and behaviors at maintenance before, you know, before I can expect to one pivot into a deficit and two successfully pivot out of a deficit. Um, right. I think those would be the big ones. No, absolutely. And I know one of the biggest things we discussed, like at the end of a diet with a client is, okay, what do you see when you don't work with us anymore? What do you see your life looking like? Is it like, Hey, you and your husband are going out for a date night twice a week. Okay. We're going to start practicing that now. So we make sure that when we are done working together, you are very good at maintaining while doing all these things, like what's your lifestyle, what you see that long-term looking like. I think that's like one of the most important things to consider here. Yeah. I, there, and now not, and not, we're going to pivot a little bit, but I also think there's a discussion of like how, like where is, if we look at like two competing variables, we have a level of leanness and the leaner you'd like to get, the more sacrifice it takes and the more sacrifice it will continue to take long-term. And everybody, if I ask you, what, hey, what do you want to look like? They're going to inevitably give me some, like, their, like, perfect picture of what they'd like to look like without considering what that thing costs. And for a lot of people, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, you know, I'd like to look like this. I'm like, okay, this is what this costs. It costs a ton of sacrifice. You know, if we're going to move that far in one direction, it's going to cost you this far in the other direction. Um, and I think a lot of people need to think hard and maybe not on their own, maybe a discussion with a client. Think hard about where on that spectrum they fall. Like, like if you want to, you know, where is the diminishing returns in effort for you? Where is the best balance of of leanness, let's say, and discomfort and lifestyle and looks? Like where is that best balance for you? Because it's probably not your leanest body. Um, it might not be where you're currently at, but you, that's why you might be in front of me. We're having this discussion of like, yeah, I'm not loving the way I look. I'm, and, you know, that might be one thing I want to change. But where, like, you're 175 pounds and you come to me you're like, hey, I want to be 135. And we look at what your life is going to look like at 135. You might be like, actually, maybe my best life is actually maybe 150, where I get way more, you know, several hundred more calories. I'm able to have those twice a week date nights. And so we're looking for this best balance of like leanness and lifestyle. And it's almost never going to be your leanest self. Most people end up with me having certain fitness goals. And then at some point along that journey, they're actually like right here with this many calories and this much flexibility and this, you know, maybe little attention to detail. This is actually a better place than what it would cost me in terms of quality of life to attain an even leaner physique. So I think giving some honest thought to like, I think I just think most people don't understand the true sacrifice it would take to maintain a like if somebody's comes to me, I want a six pack. It's like, well, mm-hmm. that's great, but like it costs X, Y, and Z, and to maintain it, it costs X, Y, and Z. So maybe we kind of recalibrate some of your goals because maybe you'd actually have a happier life a little bit, you know, further in one direction on the spectrum. No, absolutely. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was having a conversation with a client who was comparing himself himself a lot to Steve Hall. Um, and for the listeners that don't know, Steve Hall, super jacked bodybuilder. Even in the off season, he's 
pretty shredded, right? And we're talking through like, okay, man, like, what does your life look like? Now let's look at like what Steve Hall's life looks like because he does a very good job documenting most everything he does. And he's like literally probably the most dedicated natural bodybuilder that I know. He trains twice a day. He does like, uh, and I know like for me, like I don't want that to the level that Steve Hall, and we work through like, okay, so within like how much you work, your family, all these other things, like is that really the life you want? Because you can't like say I want this outcome without also being willing to take on like, okay, my life, I might not have to follow like exactly what he does, but my life probably has to look pretty similar to that. So again, like that trade-off is so important to weigh. I, I love that point, dude. Did you have anything else there? No, I use, I use this stupid example of like, uh, you like walking into Best Buy and like everybody's done this before. You walk into Best Buy and you see like those like amazing TVs and there's always that like crazy $4,000 4K TV with the fucking gecko that pops out and you're like, holy shit, this TV's unbelievable. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, I need this TV. And then you look at the price and it's like $4,000 and you're like, oh, okay, like actually I don't want it. And you leave Best Buy and you never think about that TV ever again. You know why? You loved it. It was super cool. But when you saw what it cost, your brain did a calibration of like, do I really want this thing for what it cost? And you said no. And you went on living your life and you never thought about it again. The problem is, we don't do that with our fitness. We see a physique on Instagram. We see an old picture of ourselves. We see, you know, an ambitious photo of somebody else. And we don't recalibrate what, like you said, what is Steve's life like? Do I want to live that life? And once you've decided that you don't, you must not move on from having any goals in general, but move on from that goal. But I thought, I find that people get continuously hung up on this thing they've already decided they don't really want. It's like, first, what does this cost? Second, do I want to pay that? If the answer is no, then every second after that's spent thinking about pretending like you want it, even though you've already decided that you don't, is time spent away from your best life in a negative mindset that just we need to move on from. I love that so much, man. Cool. All right, dude. Next question I have for you. In your opinion... How low should we take calories? Again, this is probably gonna be an it depends answer. You'll see a lot of like, I think it's 1200 calories is typically the number you see. And I know I've seen a ton of like, 1200 isn't enough for a toddler. I, I, I don't know if it's, I don't remember if it's 1200, but like you see a lot of things like this. So I just wanna hear your hot take on this. This is just always something I'm interested in to hear people's opinions on. How low should you take calories? Yeah, this one cracks me up. Like nobody, nobody freaks out when people say they're going on like a three day fast, but you want to eat 1200 calories for a you know, <laughs> part of your diet and people are like, oh my God, super unhealthy. Your body's going to shut down. So we, we were talking about how low we should take calories and, I, and this discussion of like a blanket term where people are like, oh, 1200 is not enough for a toddler. It's definitely not enough for you. And then people turn around and don't bat an eyelash when people do like three day fasts or alternate day fasts or just 24 hour fasts. Like people don't freak out when you eat nothing. But if you eat 1200, then all of a sudden it's just like this crazy red flag. Now, I'm not I'm not saying everyone or anybody should be eating 1200. I'm not advocating that. I definitely advocate for, for a more individualized approach, but there's two schools of thought that I hear in some way or another, at least in the, the, the Insta sphere. And it's, it's something, it's two competing kind of schools of thoughts. One is that you should diet on as many calories as you can. And those people, we'll talk about it in a second, but those people would probably say that they don't want people, you know, this, this is more sustainable, that this is an easier thing to be adherent to, which I would, at face value, on average, agree. And then another school of thought that may be a little bit louder these days, again, not the majority at all, would say diet on as few calories as you can realistically sustain. Now, both of these phrases are phrased specifically in a way that addresses adherence. Like this is not diet on as few calories as, as possible. This is just diet on as few calories as you can reasonably sustain or realistically sustain. Now, I don't agree with either of these wholly or at least as a default or at least all the time. Um, but I would probably, or at least I'm very intrigued with this, with the latter statement of diet on as few calories as you can reasonably sustain. Now, um, we're going to talk about in a second, like what are some of the, or I'd like to talk about, like people are going to hear that and be like, well, isn't more aggressive dieting dangerous or worse in a couple of ways. But, um, my take on things is like, okay, somewhere between diet on as many calories as you can and diet on as few calories as you can realistically sustain. We want the deficit to be something that's large enough to actually tangibly see something like the worst thing is thinking you're in a deficit, psychologically feeling like you're in a deficit, but not actually being in a freaking deficit and not losing weight. I mean, right. it's three, four or five weeks into a quote deficit and I haven't lost any weight. It's like, well, there's something psychologically fatiguing about trying to lose weight that is independent of actually physiologically being in a deficit. And so if we're going to try and lose weight, let's actually lose weight. It's the worst thing to be trying to lose weight, but not actually losing weight. Um, 
especially if you're actually adhering, like if you're actually adhering, but you've just chosen, you know, you've heard this diet on as many calories as you can. You're like, oh, I'll go 100 calories below what I think my maintenance is. And you happen to not lose weight because guess what? Metabolism is flexible. That that's a really like, you know, you could be five weeks into that and need a diet break when in reality you haven't actually lost any weight. You're just psychologically fatigued from trying so hard. Um, so be in a deficit that's large enough to tangibly see something. Um, and again, we talked about this before, but there's always a balance of comfort and speed. And so it's like, how uncomfortable do I want to be for the return on that discomfort? And I think everybody is going to have a different balance of those two. There are going to be people, be people listening to this who need to accept that their, you know, maybe their best and actual most sustainable progress will come from uh, a larger deficit that gives them more positive feedback that this is working, that they can fuel off of that feedback and continue to push. And there are going to be other people who diet way too aggressively and need to slow down and we'll see better long-term results because they are less uncomfortable. They can adhere to it and sustain it for longer. And so I think that it comes down to the individual, but I think that this, if you're on either end of the spectrum of a diet on as many calories as you can, or diet on as few calories as you can sustain, if you're sitting on that and you're not identifying, you know, the individual qualities of the person in front of you, then you're missing out on helping them in the best way possible. Um, and if you're thinking about, if you're listening to this, the funny part is you've, you've certainly been in this scenario where you might give somebody a range of options. You will discuss this spectrum with them and then they will inevitably almost always, eh, maybe not almost always, but more often than you would suspect they choose the, that they think that the aggressive one will be for them. You know, because they're like super psyched to get started. They're at a high level of motivation at this one moment that you've you've pumped them up. Um, but it's going to come down to some combination of their genetics, like how their just straight up physiology is going to be able to handle a lower calorie diet, uh, their personality type, their environment, the readiness to change, like their level of readiness to change when they're sitting in front of you. There's a lot of factors. It's not always easy to decide on like an, an hour Zoom call when you meet somebody. And so that doesn't mean that whichever thing you choose is, is set in stone. Sometimes you can start people in a bit of, a more sustainable, higher calorie, lower deficit, like a smaller deficit, not as large of a, not as aggressive of a deficit uh, to assess some of those things, how they're doing and, and keep the door open for making changes. Um, but a blanket answer to your question is I actually don't think I, I honestly don't think there's anything inherently wrong with going really low, realistically, fairly low in calories. Um, I'd be interested what I, I wrote a couple of them down. What, what would you, what do you think that now, now I'm interviewing you. Um, <laughs> this like, is the turns of table. <laughs> the turn tables have turned. Um, like, <laughs> like if you're if you're listening to this and you're hearing some guy say that aggressive dieting or very low calorie dieting is bad. Like, what are the what are the red flags? What do you think would be bad? What does somebody think would be bad about that? I would say typically what you hear is, hey, this is going to wreck your hormones. This is going to wreck your metabolism, and inevitably you're going to regain all the weight back because you lost so aggressively. So there's there's the big one that you mentioned was like metabolic adaptation that you're going to damage your metabolism or that, you know, and I think for the nuanced folk listening who can who know the difference between adaptation and the quote metabolic damage, which is not really a thing. Um, what we know about metabolic adaptation is that the speed of weight loss isn't really a factor that will determine how much metabolic adaptation you incur. It's actually how much body fat you lose and how lean you get, not necessarily over the span of time, how quickly you lost that weight. You know, uh, outside of super and people are going to use the biggest loser example, um, which we could debunk another time. But if you are using the biggest loser example to kind of as validity for your like 30 pounds weight loss that you want to lose when these people are losing hundreds of pounds using potentially drugs and crazy unsustainable approaches like yeah, that's really not applicable to you. So um, really one metabolic adaptation, there's you're not going to incur more metabolic adaptation if you diet more aggressively. Um, I'd say another one, people are like, oh, it's unhealthy, right? Like it's, it's unhealthy. And I think that people don't really know what that means. Like something bad, like is something bad actually going to happen to you? Uh, what's going to happen is you're going to have a shorter deficit where you lose more weight in a shorter period of time. Now it's going to suck way more. We're going to get to that. This is not, I'm not right. like, a, a, I'm not saying that everyone should do this. It's going to suck way more, but I don't know if it's inherently unhealthy. Like something necessarily bad is going to happen to you. The worst thing that could happen, which we'll get to in a sec, is that like you just can't sustain it. Um, and the third one people will talk about, they're like, oh, muscle loss. Yeah, I don't know about this muscle loss thing. I think there's plenty of research out there that says if you eat enough protein and you have a, enough of a training stimulus that you're not going to lose much muscle. And if you're really new to training, you're probably still going to be able to gain some muscle, frankly, especially if you're coming up, you know, starting this at higher levels of body fat. And so, like, if you lift and you eat, you're not going to lose muscle. And if you happen to lose muscle, but but you lost a ton of fat and that was the more important part of this time frame for you, then I think everybody would take that. If I'm like, hey, you're going to lose one pound of muscle, but you're going to lose 20 pounds of body fat in a, you know, in a, in a ratio that you really enjoy. 
I think most people, almost everybody would take that. And, and, and also, let's say you lost any muscle doing an aggressive diet. Let's say you did. You, whatever you lost, you gain back so ridiculously quickly when you go back to eating more that it becomes a question of like, if this is the right speed for you to be sustainable and adhere to it and be successful with fat loss, it is absolutely, in my opinion, worth the like, quote, risk of fat, of muscle loss, which I think is in, insanely minimal if you're eating enough protein and lifting. Um, that was a huge rant. I'm very welcome to pause and you can talk. <laughs> You crushed it. I honestly don't think I have a lot to add to that. I think understanding the metabolic adaptation piece and it's more about the total amount of body weight loss and body fat loss versus the speed. I think that's like when you hear coaches talking about, hey, we shouldn't necessarily diet aggressively. I think that's the piece that's kind of lost there is in the misunderstanding of that. Um, no, man, I think that was wonderful. I really don't have too much to add to that as all. Well. I would say I echo those exact sentiments. What I would say, though, is that just to play devil, my own devil's advocate is that like I don't recommend this aggression for anybody for, for everybody, but I don't not recommend it because you're going to lose muscle or because metabolic adaptation or because it's somehow inherently unhealthy. People are like, oh, my God, am I going to diet? I can't diet below my BMR because something bad is going to happen this is not true. Um, the worst things that can happen is you're not going to be able to sustain it, which is a huge one. And. It's super, you know, if we're using a very extreme example of very low calorie dieting, it's very extreme, which maybe has some psychological downsides in terms of relationship with food. And so, OK, uh, these these are legitimate downsides. Just don't come at me with like some physiological reason why this is a, a terrible, terrible thing. It's not. It's a psychological thing that, that is bad where you might that might be unfavorable where you, maybe there's a relationship with food disruption. Um, and also obviously, on average, people who are driving faster will crash more like this is on average. That is the truth. But there are people who race cars for a living. And so there are people who can do this really well. Um, just, again, not most people. And I just don't like the blanket statement of diet on as many calories as you can because I've seen that. I've seen a lot of people try and diet on a very small deficit and become psychologically fatigued with no no weight loss return for their efforts or a disproportionately low return on their efforts. Okay. So I would ask, what would be some common things you would look for that, so you're talking to a new client on a Zoom call, how would you kind of weigh, okay, you're probably a better candidate for a more aggressive diet versus you're probably a better candidate for a slower diet? Because most everyone on that call is going to say, I'm most motivated by fast progress. I need to go fast, right? So what, what's your take on that? It's a good question. I don't think it's fair to, to assume you know somebody well enough to do this out of the gate. So I think this is a process that 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 happens within maybe the first month of dieting. So you're not wasting a ton of time, not losing weight. So normally I will start people normally what I'll discuss with somebody is like, Hey, like what is the range of what is the most you could eat? That would still be a tangible deficit. Maybe, maybe it's like 300, 300 to 400 calorie deficit where we're for sure in a deficit. It's meaningful. We can, we can tangibly see it week to week. And then maybe what would be the most aggressive that I would even be okay with. And then we have a range. I'll probably start people closer on the conservative side, but as the weeks go by, we will continue to assess their level of discomfort and their return on their investment. And as I get to know them more, as they get to understand that relationship between how hard is this and what do I get in return, we can recalibrate here and there. And sometimes sometimes you don't even learn it until you've done an entire deficit. I have clients who did an eight to 12 week deficit and we look back and, and she, you know, I'm thinking of somebody in particular looking back and saying, you know, that really wasn't hard. And that's a great thing, by the way, that full stop. You can just say, this wasn't hard. This is fantastic. But that person might still also be saying that they would have, they would like to try a different strategy next time that they felt like they were still like really satiated and maybe would have preferred, or at least wanted to experiment with potentially going a little bit lower in calories and maybe losing a little bit more and, or maybe just shrinking the length of the deficit. So it's definitely something that happens as you learn, as you get to know somebody a little bit more. But I think a lot of people assume, I know I'm sure you get asked questions 24 seven about how to set your calories. It's like, this is a, this is a recalibration process that we assess the data. We assess your biofeedback. We assess your psychology and we make changes. And so the setting this aggressive or conservative right out of the gate is unlikely to be the case for me. It's certainly I'll, I'll probably put you somewhere in the middle of that spectrum or on the conservative side. And then we'll start to reassess how you're feeling biofeedback, psychology, you know, actual fat loss, actual adherence. I mean, if you're not adhering to the conservative side, it's unlikely that we're like, you know what would fix this less food. And so it's definitely something where I'd like to get to. <laughs> but that's what most people do. Yeah. 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 True. That and, is true. In a weird, I would say like in a very common way, like a lot of, I know I have this conversation with clients quite a bit, like when adherence is an issue and it's often like, Hey, 
can we get more aggressive? Like, like you said, like again, to take it back to the driving analogy, like let's say you're like, hey, we're driving, you keep like blowing stop signs, you like hit a pedestrian. We're not gonna like, okay, let's drive faster and you'll be a better driver, right? It's, <laughs> but it's a very common, different, different point. Anyways. This is, this uh, is where people, this is where people get into the, well, I raised my calories and I, and I started losing weight. And a lot of times it's because you raised yes. calories and you became more adherent and then you started losing weight. This literally, it's like, how did I add numbers and subtra- and thus it led to numbers being subtracted? It's like literally mathematically impossible. What happens is you weren't actually doing what you thought you were doing before. Now you are adhering to higher calories technically as prescribed, but probably on average, realistically what's going in your face, less calories. That is, I love that so much because there's so much like marketing around. Well, I got my client before they started, they were only eating 1200 calories. Now they're eating 1900 calories and look how much more shredded they got. And it's like, holy shit. When, just like you said there, I think that's such a good, it is very good marketing, but I think that's such an important thing to understand. Like, and it all, we could talk about this for so long, but anyways, man, to move on to our next question here, very common question I get. And I just want to hear your take on it, how you typically respond to a client in this scenario. If I overeat one day, should I make up for it the next day? Yeah. Um, well, I think we, we understand, just to break that down for one second, I think people need to, un- and I'm sure your your podcast, I know your viewership is is pretty well versed in some of this stuff, but that calorie cycling is a real thing and that mathematically, if you eat higher on one day and lower on another day over the course of the week, if the averages match up, then you're going to see the same amount of body weight change or body fat change. And so this idea of like, let's say you have 2000 calories on one day and then 1000 on the next day, it's the same technically as eating 1500 on both days. And so the kind of question you're asking is if I have 2000, let's say we use a bigger number 3000 and I was supposed to eat 2000. Should I eat 1000 next day to average things out? Um, the first thing to understand, at least as a baseline, is mathematically, this works out fine. Like mathematically, this is how it works. You can do that. That would work. You could do 3,000, 1,000, 3,000, 1,000 versus somebody doing 2,000 every day. A year from now, you guys are in the same place, obviously in a bubble adherence and all protein and exercise all being the same. Right. Um, and so that leaves us with like a, you know, a thought of like, oh, well, then you should do this. That'd be great. I don't know. Uh, I'm. All, it's funny because I actually love this question. I don't have as many just like online, like online coaches on. And now I'm thinking as I was reading this question, I'm like, this is a wonderful question because I think you ask 10 different people, you get 10, 10 slightly different answers. I think everybody's going to say it depends on some level, but I still, I'm actually, as I was writing my own answer, I was like, I'd be interested with Jeremiah has to say, I'd be interested in like what some of my coaches in the circle have to say. So you're very welcome to voice your own opinion here, but I definitely think it depends on headspace because it doesn't depend on physiology. Physiology, you can absolutely do this. Go nuts. Like it, it would work fine. Calorie cycling is a thing. There's a thing. Alternate day fasting is a, a big extrapolation of calories cycling, refeed days and all this stuff is all an extrapolation on calorie cycling. And so mathematically, you can absolutely do it. Uh, and so I think we're like, okay, it's possible. So now should I is comes down to the individual and the headspace. Um, you know, a lot of people are going to do um, totally fine with calorie cycling, a little bit higher on some days, a little bit lower on other days, kind of working the average. A lot of people are going to do fine with that. I've also find, found that, and when I started this and early on in my career, I loved calorie cycling. I thought it was like the fanciest, Same. the coolest way to like take your life and overlay your calories onto it and say, okay, this, I go out twice a week. I'm going to have two high days. I do that. I thought it was going to be the, the bee's knees. I thought it was going to be the best thing ever. And it turns out that like some people take to it really well and some people, it is absolutely not worth it. And I think it, it's going to come right. down to your headspace of like, there are going to, I have clients who let's say they eat 3000 the next day. They can go as low as like they can do like a protein sparing modified fast the next day, be in a wonderful headspace about it, not view it as punishment, go on with their <laughs> life, crush the average, feel fine. And I'll tell you now, they are in the vast minority. Like that's not normally how this goes. It's usually, um, you know, it usually starts with having an honest discussion with the client and see where their headspace is. But truthfully, like even when you do that, we're pretty good at fooling ourselves. And the, and the fucked up thing is we're way more comfortable with the idea of punishment than we are with the idea of forgiveness. And so when you have somebody who's like, hey, I just overate last night, Jeremiah, like what should I do the next day? Like they're hoping you say eat less because they want the punishment. They feel the guilt. They want the punishment. It's the forgiveness and the moving on that is like a superpower. And so even if you, you know, if I get a whiff of that, of somebody who's like, who's like begging me to like tell them to punish themselves, 
I will try and help them do the hard thing, which is the forgiveness side of things. Um, you know, and so I think that that's something that I is is our job as a coach is to identify when people are fooling themselves and to try and help them do the hard thing that might be you know more difficult in the short term, but cause longer term psychological growth that will manifest into physical growth as well. Um, so certainly, the question in general is like, is calorie cycling right for somebody, or is compens- compensatory calorie intake right for somebody? I think it's going to come down to your headspace and your intent. But uh, my personal experience is most people are going to be better off just getting back to their normal calories, um, watching the scale fluctuate up and down and go back to their normal life. I think that question maybe does or doesn't change whether you're in a deficit or maintenance. I I don't think it changes as much as people think. Um, I'd like to see people first just get back to what they were doing because that is probably psychologically more difficult. And I want to see you do that. I want to see you push yourself to do the harder thing. Uh, again, a lot to unpack there. First of all, that's very interesting that you mentioned that about calorie cycling because I've seen like us, like myself and Andrea, our other coach, kind of go down the exact same path. Where like when I started, it was like this is so fucking cool. Like you can do all this stuff with, and it's like, well, yes, it's cool in theory. It typically, in my experience, like the more cute we try to get with calorie cycling, there is I would say like twenty percent of people seem to do very well with calorie cycling. Hey, we're gonna have two high days in the weekends. You crush it. The other 80%, typically what it amounts to is like, hey, we saw you losing, losing, losing over five days. And then you set yourself back over these two days dramatically. And basically every week is like us starting over at this exact same place and we're not actually making any progress forward. So first of all, it's very interesting that you brought that up. Um, Cause I've definitely seen the same thing. I would say here from what I've seen, almost always, if it is someone who is, Hey, I went over yesterday. If they're retroactively asking about it, almost always I think it's better to, hey, no, just get back on track. We're not going to try to make up for this, right? Because I, in my experience, that almost always turns into a cycle of like, okay, well, I'm out and I really want to work this in. I know this will push me over my calories, but hey, I did this last time. And then like they kind of get in this place where they're constantly trying to play catch up and it doesn't ever necessarily lead to anything that productive. Whereas typically what I found is like, if, hey, you're planning ahead, Okay, so like I don't have this thing coming up this weekend. It's a couple days away still at the very least. Hey, can I plan ahead and make this work in? Typically, that's a situation where like, yeah, that's perfectly fine, right? But I think when, from what I've seen, when someone gets into the cycle of like, ah, fuck it, like I can just make up for this later, typically that doesn't work out very well would be my take. Yeah, I like I like your take on the retroactive versus proactive. I think that that's a big one. I think there's a very big difference between planning a high day, planning a low day versus waking up feeling guilty, wanting to starve yourself to punish you until I kind of fix this. And so uh, I love that. I think that's great. I, it's something that came to mind was like, if you're going to have if you're going to be proactive and do this like high day, low day, I think the low days need to be more the opposite of chaotic, way more planned, uh, more structured. I mean, the lower your calories go, the more structure, it, in my opinion, needs to be there. And so if you're going to have like this 3,000 calorie day and then a 1,000 calorie day, let's say, for example, those are extreme examples, but let's say you're going to do that. I would want to see to the T what your 1,000 calorie day looks like. I would want you to write it out for me, to pre-track it maybe. Um, it's not likely that you're going to intuitively choose the, you, you probably, you nobody, nobody listening to this can intuitively structure right now off the top of their head at a thousand calorie a day. So I'd love to see, I would want somebody to plan it out. Maybe even so they just look, look at that and they're like, holy shit, this blows. I don't want to do this. But also so they wake up in the morning and in, you know, in an attempt to increase the likelihood that they succeed, it's already there in front of them. Right, that's again, weird. You said that because that's exactly what, like if I'm going to implement a protein spare modify fast day, it's, Hey, I want to see this literally plan in your food diary at a time. Cause otherwise like you're trying to do, 150 grams of protein and a thousand calories. That's going to be super fucking hard unless you know exactly what you're going to do ahead of time. Um, do you have a couple more minutes, man? I know you I, mentioned you had something. Uh, no, I got plenty of like, time. I got, I have nothing. Okay, daylight. So we can keep, we can keep kicking it. Time. Cool. Yeah. Cool. All right, dude. Um, next question I have for you. Again, this is going to be a very much, it depends, but I'm interested to hear like kind of within your coaching service, what direction people typically go. Do you think most people who want to get lean? So again, let's use this individual who wants to lose about, 10 to 20 pounds of body fat, let's say, but also build muscle are usually better off trying to lose fat first, build muscle first or recomp. Yeah, obviously it depends, but I think, I think off the bat, it almost doesn't, at least between three. I think I would, I think the, the bulking one is almost 
is by far the least likely outcome that I would suggest. I think most people, the quicker route to them enjoying their physique more quickly is redundant, but uh, would be the cutting. But I also think this person to me strikes me as a person who's a beginner at all this. And so somebody who's like, hey, what should I do? Like, you have no idea where to even start. Then maybe immediately jumping into like a higher level of discomfort deficit might not be the best thing. I think at least beginning at, again, it's going to come down to the individual. So it's tough to like say, you know, everybody should do something, but I would lean at least if I were to rank them, most likely I would talk this person or at least suspect that we would end up doing maintenance slash recomp for at least the time being to establish some good habits before discussing, you know, or maybe just with the purpose of discussing what a deficit will be like after we establish these good habits and behaviors Um, or a deficit, depending on their level of readiness. And maybe, maybe they have this question, but this doesn't rep- properly re- represent where they are on like the experience level. Maybe they're a little bit more experienced, a good level of nutrition knowledge, good structure, good environment. Their life is actually set up for this, and they just happen to have this one question. I think maintenance or a fat loss phase would be fine. Even if a fat loss phase would be fine, I might still, as I'm getting to know this person, be like, hey, that's cool. Let's do like two to four weeks at maintenance first. Let me just see what's up with your eating pattern. And, and you know, you might be saying a lot of good things to me on this call, but let's see it. Let me see like some food diaries. Let me see like a couple levels, like maybe a mesocycle of training, consistency, uh, communication standards that are set for one another. Let's like check those boxes first before layering on top some level of discomfort in a deficit. That's interesting, man. I would, I, I, and I agree with what you said there. I would say that most people who start now, what I'll say is as of at least the last six months, I would say I've had a lot of clients hop on board who have been trying to recomp. So like they've successfully gone. So this is honestly, doesn't necessarily fit the context of what I laid out, <laughs> but have been trying to recomp for a very long time. Like they successfully gotten lean in the past. Um, didn't necessarily have as much muscle as they needed to look the way they wanted. And then have spent like years just trying to recomp, trying to recomp, trying to recomp, and then hop on board. Hey, let's continue to try to recomp, right? It's like, this wasn't really working for you in the past. It, just because you're paying me, it probably isn't going to start working for you now. We probably need to build first. Um, I don't know. That's, that's definitely an interesting one, but I would agree. I think it is very context dependent on where you're coming from. I would say too, like that, that's different than how I initially framed the question, but it, it just, it is an interesting thing to dive into. Cause I that's a very common question I get. Like specifically, I think recomp is such an appealing idea to so many people, but I also, I don't know if you, do you get a lot of people that have like been trying to recomp for a very long time already? Uh, probably not. Uh, but really? if you framed that, me. if you framed it the way you framed it, then I would agree. I would agree with you. I'd say that there's, I'd say recomp would be the last on that list. Um, I'd see, I'd say the the gain thing is probably the thing they have to do at some point that really sets them apart. Right. The only reason you might do the cut first is for like buy-in sake and for more enjoyment of like immediately being leaner and enjoying it. But I think that that person who comes to you, you know, because you're a professional, that what they really need to do is spend one to two years out of a deficit gaining muscle most of that time in a surplus. And so I agree with you there. The thing I think is just like a very baseline thing is if somebody comes to you and they're like, they have this question, you need to ask them, are you comfortable getting fatter from where you are here? Are you comfortable with more body fat than you have right now? Right. And if the answer is no, well then we take that one off the table. Even if it's something that you should do, we, I think that potentially where this person is, it's like, okay, this is the gap for you. You, you, you what you've expressed to me is that you know, at some point you're going to need more muscle than you have right now. So at some point we're probably going to have to do this. But if you are currently not comfortable with getting any more body fat than you have right now, then we're not going to do that thing. Um, I think people need to, I'll have people that are like, I really want to do build. I really want to build maximum muscle. I'm like, okay, are you okay with, you know, being, you know, have, having higher body fat percentage or more body fat than you have right now? They're like, oh yeah, not really. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't, we, we can either continue to recomp or we can, you know, cut and to leave some room on the top end for you to gain more body. Those are both fine options, but yeah, I see what you're saying. That would be a different scenario where someone's coming to me. They tried to recomp for a while. Then recomp would be the last thing. The only way I would continue to recomp would just to make sure their training is optimized um, you know, someone's like, I've been trying to recomp, but I've been doing Barry's boot camp. It's like, okay, you probably have more recomp in you than you think if you get on a real hypertrophy style program. And so people are like, oh, I haven't made gains in a while. I have never done a surplus. And I'm like, okay, well, what have you been doing? And they're like, okay, I've been doing input some hit YouTube workouts here. And it's like, okay, well, maybe you actually can do recomp. And if you get on a, you know, you get, you have a better training stimulus, let's say. That's a good point as well. I think I should have elaborated on that a little bit more because I also don't want anyone to think that like it's, hey, no matter what, 
you have to build first and foremost. That's a very, very specific, like you've been doing things relatively right for a very long period of time. Whereas like, as you said, if it's, hey, a lot of people, I would still say like the majority of people do have the ability to recomp more than they would expect. Because I would also say that like most people haven't been that dialed in on their training, the amount of volume they needed to be doing, their execution, their intensity, and also with their nutrition to the extent they are when they start coaching. So I do think that most people have the ability to recomp more. It's, I feel like we could also though take this like a plethora of different directions and like all the different nuances of where it does and doesn't apply. Do you have anything else to add to that? Um, not, not really. I love that what you said. I think I do believe that on average, more pe- people have more uh, capacity to recomp than they think because they have more boxes to check, more knobs to turn that they haven't been doing all at once. Um, I also think more people have, you know, I think the if we look at the kind of person who, can recomp the least one of the big components is the current level of body fat and so if you're not super lean that already puts you in a category of more likely to have more recomp than you think if you have slightly more body fat and you haven't been doing excellent really intelligent programming with good volume and exercise selection intensity and all stuff if all that sounded kind of like gibberish to you then chances are you have more recomp than you think the only now again we could just i don't want to i don't want to rabbit hole it again but you might have you might have somebody who who can recomp for a while but the it's funny because in recomp while you have your best life, things will change in both directions the slowest. You will get stronger, slower than you would. You will get stronger slash build muscle slower than you would. I, I don't use the build muscle part because you can't really see that while you're in a surplus. You're gaining like some distribution of fat and muscle. You can't really tell, honestly. You just, it looks like you're getting bigger. Um, but you're getting stronger, slower. And so those tangible like micro progressions that you would have been making larger jumps in in a surplus, you're not getting those. You're still progressively overloading, sure, but slower than you would have been. And you're not getting leaner week to week, month to month measurements and pictures changing. So you're not getting any really like the two available, large, tangible feedback mechanisms. You're not getting either of them. You're getting kind of strong. And every six months you might look different, but some people are going to thrive on some people. You might want them to recomp because it's their best life, but they might have the personality type of like, I'll do better if I'm like, we talked about this, like weight loss, you know, tangible feedback system, and they might do better if they have a directional goal that's like really tangible. And so there's some nuance there. I love it, man. I couldn't agree more. Um, my last question for you I, on a completely different note. I know that we've both learned quite a bit from RP and work with coaches who are pretty deep in the RP methodologies and then kind of have that same shift to in one education, learning from them, working with coaches who have been pretty influenced by them. So I'm just curious to hear kind of within, and again, I just want to see like what this looks like for you, kind of your biggest takeaways from both Renaissance periodization and in one and kind of how you've meshed them within what you do with clients. Yeah, this is a, this is a good question for me. I mean, I hope there's people out there who get something out of this. Like, uh, I, I I find this <laughs> this is a very selfish question for me. I was just interested. <laughs> yeah, and then that's a, that's cool because I think about this a lot. Actually, I think about the relationship between the two of them and the things I've taken from both of them and how you know how I can be the best coach having come from both of those backgrounds. Um, so I thought about this one for quite some time. Actually, for like a good 10, 15 minutes, I was thinking about this. And and N one is. I'm going to the seminar actually tomorrow in Colorado, so I'm pretty pumped. And oh, oh, uh, okay. their biomechanics has absolutely changed the way that I view exercise selection. And that you could, it sounds like an, a wholly good thing. I'm, I think it's mostly good. I think it's turned me into, like, I don't know how, how well you know Kasim or how well your audience knows Kasim, but he's like a purebred, like, bi- like, if it ain't optimal, if it doesn't make logical sense, like, there's just, there's no room for, like, He's a real uh, um, purist. Like, if he's a purist to the T. If it makes logical sense, we do. If it doesn't make logical sense, like, you know, hypertrophy, we're never doing back squats or whatever. Like, if it's not optimal, right. it's very by the book. And so there's some element of that that's really good. I mean, my podcast is literally called Where Optimal Meets Practical. And so my my entire goal is to kind of find the correct marriage or, or the most helpful marriage between those two. So I think N1 biomechanics absolutely skyrocketed my understanding of exercise selection also made me a very critical thinker. I think that that's something I've, I very much attribute to N1 to kind of ask a lot of good questions, maybe because I have more knowledge now, I'm able to kind of work and sift through some of that stuff. So really, really good on that. Also, periodization um, has been cool to kind of expose myself to the potential benefits of periodization. I don't think I, I've, I'm at a point where I've thrown away the playbook and now I'm only doing like 
you know, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy into tension-based, into metabolic, into into systemic. And, you know, it's certainly upped my game because it's given me another tool in my toolbox. Um, And again, just, it's so, it's a very intellectual way of thinking about all this. It's a very logical way, which clicks with a part of my brain that is like highly active. This is this logical side that is like, um, almost in a robotic way. So I really like that. Um, but I do think when it, when I finished all the courses and I know when I get back from the seminar, there's going to be a ton of stuff that I take and I apply to my clients right right away. My content, my clients, it will up their game. I also know there are going to be things that, you know, I need to do a good job identifying as a coach. It's like, where do I leave some of this? Where are there such diminishing returns? Where is there complexity potentially for complexity's sake? And so, you know, that's a job that you need to do. I mean, the entire thing and N of one means, you know, taking everyone as an individual. And I already have a, I have a group program, which already goes against the, just everything that N one stands for is taking everyone for an, as an individual. So, um, that's kind of how I've viewed my experience with N one so far. By the way, almost entirely massively positive. I love it. I love what they right. what they stand for. I appreciate that they are doing the pursuit of optimality. I love that because I think it's your your job and my job to kind of disseminate that information to people uh, to that end user. I mean, they're not coaching regular average Joes like you and me. They're coaching maybe you and me uh, to then go on and coach those people. So I think it's our job to kind of take that you know chew it up and regurgitate it, disseminate it in a way that makes sense. For RP, I think SFR has been RP's greatest contribution to the to the industry, just as a general philosophical framework for how we view exercises. Uh, I'm sure that N1 and, and RP might have a slightly different view on SFR, but I've seen some some N1 um, content that utilizes SFR, that says SFR, that references SFR as it's written, and so mm-hmm. I, I like that that they, there's been some marriage there. Um, and what I will say is, when it comes to progression models. I, I have used an RP progression model since my, since I started online coaching. Uh, and for those maybe not understanding necessarily what that is, a very general breakdown would be starting your mesocycle on, uh, for every set, let's say kind of further from failure, let's say three reps away from failure, and then just matching or beating those numbers until you get close to failure near overreaching or however long your mesocycle is, and then you restart. And so it's a very simple, very basic, very easy to understand construct of, hey, week one, I start further away from failure. Every week after that, I get closer to failure, eventually, inevitably uh, arriving at failure. Maybe I hang out there for a week, then I try not to overreach, and I deload and I start again. It's massively, I have taken people who've never thought about RIR for one second in their life and made them absolute whizzes at that progression scheme. Now, is that 100% always optimal? I would say no. I'd say it's so freaking close to optimal though and arguably like so unbelievably close that if you can say, all right, so unbelievably close to optimal for most people who don't need to be Ronnie Coleman and it's really easy for them to understand that I I really do love that progression model because of its you know, balance of optimal and practical. And so I'm a little bit torn. I have some of my group right now doing a little bit more of what I've learned from N1. I have some of my online coaching one-on-one clients doing a mixture. Uh, And so I'm finding my feet with what I think is the best balance of like how much, how much intellectual stimuli am I trying to impart on this, this group of people and, and how much can I get them really close to what's optimal with less effort. And so it's still something I'm working through. Uh, Yin man sounds like we're in a very similar place there. I know I've <clears throat> same as you and I've talked about that progression scheme a lot on this podcast because I do think it's one of the easiest ways for people to understand how to make great progress across the middle cycle. Like it's so simple. We start at two RIR, we push a little bit harder every week. Eventually we get to zero to one RIR and most people when they get to zero to one RIR are like, oh shit, I've never actually... <laughs> been here before or on the flip side hey maybe i'm pushing way too hard every weekend like that's and i would say that's less common but i do very much i'm still i would say i'm still kind of trying to find the balance between i know i have a lot of clients so where it's like hey we are moving from two to three rir to zero to one across the middle cycle and then like also implementing these other like hey we're moving from metabolic to this more hypertrophy based stimulus to neuro it's it's interesting, man. I didn't really have any like concluding thoughts on that. I was just interested to kind of hear what to, you're about. To, I, I don't, I, just to like think about the RP for a second, like what I love most about it is that you only really need to think about RIR once, maybe twice across the whole mesocycle. And so if you start your first week at, at a two to three RIR and you focus on that, you really try and nail it. And maybe you don't nail it right away, but over time, over mesocycles, you get better at it. And you start your first week, two to three RIR. 
You really don't ever need to think about RIR again. You just try and add a rep or a little bit of load and the RIR really does take care of itself. What I'm finding is that if I prescribe like a 2-1-0 RIR scheme on week one and then like a 1-1-0 and then a 3-2-1-0 and then a, it, it, it makes you really think about each set every single time you're in the gym, which for, you know, might be a, might be a effort that has a return that's tangible for you or for me. But on average, what's probably important is to not go to failure all the time, but to go to failure some of the time and to begin with easier training than you end with. And I think both of these terminologies, I guess, both these progression schemes would fall under and meet those requirements. I know that my N1, you know, the people who I, I, I hate that we're going to like, whatever, we should attribute it to them. But like, let's say something where you're not doing straight RIR across all the sets where it's like a two one zero zero for one exercise. On average, though, you're going to start with three, two, one, zero, and then on average, towards the end of the med cycle, maybe two, one, zero, zero. So we're still moving along this spectrum of on average closer to failure over time. And so, if you can get a client to not go to failure all the time, go to failure sometimes, and progressively train harder across the med cycle, deload regularly, good exercises. It's like you know, I don't want to get caught too caught in the weeds between which of those would be better. I think there are some pros and cons. We could, I would actually, I might have you on the podcast so we can talk specifically about these like I love potential progression scheme differences, but there are pros and cons for sure. But there are, are practical pros and cons that I think outweigh any of the physiological differences. Wonderful way to sum that up. All right, man, I have taken up a lot of your time. This was such a fun conversation. I love this conversation. Um, hopefully the listeners do as well. Before I let you go though, man, will you just tell everyone where they can find you and anything at all you'd like to plug? Yeah, sure. So I, I'm mostly active on Instagram at Jordan Lips Fitness. I have a podcast on, on Spotify and iTunes, uh, similar topics and, and, and guests to you. It's called Where Optimal Meets Practical, obviously similar topics and whatnot. Um, recently launched a group programming on the Train Heroic app, whether you're training at home or in the gym, there's a program for you. It's There's a ton of information in my bio. I don't want to plug a ton of stuff, but if you're looking for a good program and you know, a one-on-one coach, get in there. It's been super fun. We're about to finish our first mesocycle. It's been awesome. Perfect, man. I will link all that up in the show notes. And again, I'll say from following you, like if you are a listener, I know we don't have any type of group offering. So if there is someone that you want like group programming from, I would definitely check out Jordan's stuff. You're someone I highly recommend, dude. So again, man, thank you for being here and we will talk to you guys soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.